All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. Title to our message this morning is The Threat Against the Firstborn. As you're turning there, please remember that the Word of God is it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. May God bless the proclamation of his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, your word says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over it, watch over it in vain. Lord, our preaching and our listening here is in vain this morning. Unless you, Lord, are present um, to give us utterance and to give us hearing and application in our hearts that you might receive the glory. So please come now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Now, presumably, as chapter 11 begins, this conversation happens in thick darkness. The the ninth plague was still hovering over the land. Remember that at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh summoned Moses to negotiate for relief. So there were voices in the room, but they couldn't see each other. 
And after Moses refuses to negotiate with Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets angry. Verse 28 says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses replies, as you say, I will not see your face again. But Moses didn't leave yet. Uh, We know this because uh, it's not until chapter 11, verse 8, that we read that he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So here at the beginning of chapter 11, they're in the throne room together, uh, and there's darkness in the room, and then another voice speaks, the Lord himself in verses 1 and 2. And he threatens this last plague upon Egypt. He declares that afterward, Pharaoh will drive away the people of Israel, and he says that the Egyptians will finance this new nation by giving them their silver and their gold. Now, whether Pharaoh heard Yahweh's voice or not, I don't know. But Moses picks the conversation with Pharaoh back up in verse 4, and he threatens Egypt with this last and most terrifying plague. He says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now, mind you, this is only uh, the threat of the 10th plague. It's not the plague itself. Uh, The plague doesn't occur until until chapter 12, verse 29. Uh, So dreadful is this last plague that it takes nearly two chapters to describe it before it actually occurs. So that brings us then to our big idea this morning. The threat against the firstborn is God's most terrifying and ancient judgment toward any people. So let's begin with our doctrine. Now, even though there's an incredible amount of space dedicated to this last plague, it all happens very quickly. Uh, In verse 4, he says, about midnight... I will go out in the midst of the land of Egypt. So uh, death would come in the middle of the night. And before the Egyptians were finished burying their dead the next day, Israel would leave Egypt forever. Numbers 33, 3 and 4 says that on the day after Passover, which is what we're going to learn about in chapter 12, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. So this is Israel's last night in bondage. Verse 5. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Now, this idea of firstborn is absolutely prominent, starting right here and running through chapter 13. The term is mentioned 17 times. And here, the scope of the threat is staggering. From Egypt's most powerful man, Pharaoh, to the most lowly Egyptian, the slave girl grinding grain, To every beast of the field, all the firstborns, whether man or animal, wherever they were in Egypt, uh, would die. 
Now, the, the Hebrew word for firstborn, it's bechor. It actually refers to the firstborn male. It's never used directly in Scripture to a firstborn female. It's, it's not that girls couldn't be born first. They, they are. Um, uh, but the threat is not against who was chronologically born first. Rather, this threat is against the one child on whom the future of the family depended. In Scripture, that is always the firstborn son. Um, I mean, just ask yourself, when you, you come across the genealogies in Scripture, which child is always, without exception, mentioned first? The son, the firstborn son. Genesis 25, 22 through 23. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben... Jacob's firstborn. Genesis 36, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. Or what we just read in Genesis 38, uh, it was Judah's uh, firstborn Ur, right? Just search it out for yourselves. The firstborn son is always distinguished as having preeminence above the rest. This is the pattern of all of Scripture. And so the question is, is why does the Bible focus then on the firstborn son? Because the firstborn son is the new patriarch of the next generation. He's the representative head. This goes all the way back to Adam. Adam was the firstborn of the old world. He represented the entire human race. Abraham was the firstborn of the nation of Israel. And as such, he was the root of that nation. Now, sometimes that status can be transferred from uh, one son to another son, like in the case of Jacob and Esau. Esau, naturally speaking, uh, should have had the right of the firstborn. But God told Rebekah that their roles would be reversed. Genesis 25, 23, the older shall serve the younger. And then Esau, in fact, sold his firstborn birthright to Jacob in verse 33, and then later gave that firstborn blessing to Jacob and not Esau, Genesis 27, 29. So, so the firstborn status is not about chronology, uh, who came first per se. The firstborn status was about which son was charged with being the torchbearer for the next generation. And that's why the firstborn was always given the double portion of the inheritance. So in Deuteronomy 21, it says, On the day when he assigns his possessions, the father, as an inheritance to his sons, he shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. Firstborn received a double portion because all of the care of the parents and the leadership of the family depended entirely on him. Elsewhere, we know that the firstborn had the first right of being the kinsman redeemer. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 12, firstborn had the, was first in line to be the king in royal families, 2 Chronicles 21, 3. So he was given this double inheritance because he had double the responsibility. Let's consider two more places because... I think this type of thinking is so abstract for, for our Western minds that we need to 
We need to solidify it. So please turn with me to Genesis 49.3. This is the place where Jacob was blessing his sons right before he died. And he begins with the firstborn, Reuben. Genesis 49.3, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Now, in the next verse, Jacob tells him that he's not going to have that right because he had slept with one of his concubines. But don't miss the point. Reuben, the firstborn, was blessed with the firstfruits of his strength. That's a metaphor. Firstfruits in Scripture represents the first and best portion that God required from Israel at the harvest. So Jacob was saying that Reuben, being his first fruits, held a position of honor and preeminence above his brothers. Now, the expectation would have been, if he wouldn't have lost this status, that, that the family legacy would have been extended through him and his descendants. One more place. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 51. This is recounting all the plagues that God poured out on Egypt. Psalm 78, 51 mentions the 10th plague. He, the Lord, struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. See, it wasn't merely that Egypt was was losing a child. They were losing a family legacy. Uh, We know from elsewhere in Scripture that to lose the firstborn was to be under the curse of God. Remember when Joshua, uh, he cursed the man, whoever would rebuild Jericho with the loss of their firstborn son, uh, Joshua 6.26. So when Egypt was threatened with the loss of their firstborn, they were threatened to be under the curse of God. Let's turn back to Exodus 11. Let's look at verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Now, even if everything I, I said um, is, is not true about having that status, Losing a child is the most painful thing that any parent could ever experience. This cry in Egypt was, in fact, great. But it wasn't just a child that they lost. Remember that the Egyptians themselves didn't actually have large families. This was the whole conflict at the beginning of Egypt, at the beginning of Exodus, that the Israelites were uh, extending the cultural mandate and Egypt was not. So they didn't have large families. For many of them, the death of the firstborn meant that um, their families would be cut off forever. It meant that Pharaoh's son would not inherit the kingdom. It meant that the slave girl would not have a son to take care of her when she grew old. It meant that even the beasts would lose their most ablest um, of offspring. And, And what is said here is that this cry 
in Egypt was greater than any cry that had happened before, and it was greater than any cry that will ever happen in Egypt, even down to this present day. The status of the firstborn is the most valuable asset that a family or a nation can have, and to lose it is to be brought to ruin. So that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. The threat against the firstborn is God's most terrifying and ancient judgment towards any people. Let's consider three quick examples of this. First example is Cain. Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, and when he murdered Abel, how did God punish him? Well, essentially, he revoked his firstborn status. He would not be the one who would carry on his father's legacy. That would be Seth. God told Cain in Genesis 4, 11, and 12, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. And how did Cain respond? He said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Example number two, Esau. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac and Rebekah. When Jacob had swindled Esau out of the firstborn blessing, uh, we read in Genesis 27, 38, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He wept because he lost this status. And do you know how he comforted himself? Rebecca tells Jacob in verse 42, I'm glad you're listening, that's great. Um, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Example number three, Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. He believed that if he could just rescue Joseph from his brothers, then he could regain that status. Genesis 37, 29 says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He, he, he cared more about restoring his firstborn status. Where shall I go? Than, than rescuing Joseph. His one concern was his status. Now, modern Christians may not understand this, But in Scripture, the rights of the firstborn set forth the priority of life. The firstborn represents all. The firstborn represents the the foundation of Egypt's entire society. So think about it this way. In the previous nine plagues, God tore down the house of Egypt. And then in the tenth plague, he destroyed the foundation. As one author puts it, when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt in the 10th plague, he thereby destroyed the inheritance of apostate man. That's what's happening under the surface. That's our doctrine. So let's look then what this means for us. What is our duty? 
We've said over and over again that there were many Egyptians that left with Israel. Praise God. Um, but Egypt, generally speaking, represents the world. That's the type. So Egypt represents apostate man. So our first duty to ask is, okay, if God removes this firstborn status, if he removes this inheritance, what happens to it? What happens to the inheritance of the apostate? He gives it, God gives it to his people. That is precisely what's happening in verses 2 through 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. God says to Moses, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting that in our passage, the death of the firstborn and the plundering of the Egyptians are linked. They're connected together. Who would have received this silver and gold? The firstborn of Egypt. But Israel Israel receives it. Why? Because Israel is the firstborn of God. Uh, Turn back quickly to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. I wish that I would have expanded this more at at that point. This is right before they go into the Exodus, and, and God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel had the right of the firstborn. And so what God does is he causes the Egyptians to give their inheritance of their firstborn over to Israel, the firstborn of God. And dear congregation, this is not some blip in in ancient history. This is the story, the narrative of all of history. As one author says it, in every age, God strikes at the power and the firstborn of the world to deliver his chosen sons. God's purpose in history works towards the dispossession of false sons who seized the earth after the fall and its repossession and succession in the hands of his sons of grace, end quote. That's, that's why Proverbs 30, 13, 22 says that the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Uh, this is how the meek inherit the earth. Um, and God is still doing this um, just like he did in days of old. He's still striking the firstborn of the world and giving it to his people. Okay, Here, here's how to interpret what's happening in the world today. What do we see in the world today? The culture of death. And that's God's judgment. What are all the things that we're seeing? We're seeing abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. Our own culture is assaulting their firstborn. I was having a conversation with one of our deacons before service today. Do you realize that in the entire Western world, the birth rate that is required to sustain and uphold the next generation is below what is required? What are all of these things? God's judgment against the firstborn of this rebellious world. 
It's not the church that's being disinherited. It's the new Egypt that's being disinherited. And do you realize that in the New Testament, what is the church called? The church is called the firstborn. In Hebrews 12, 23, we're called the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. God's people have the firstborn status on the earth. We are heirs of the world, Romans 4, 13. So what, what we see happening in the world today is actually it's an echo of the 10th plague. God is dispossessing apostate man of their inheritance, and he's giving the plunder over to God's people. And, and you, you might say, well, it doesn't feel like that. It feels pretty dark right now. Yeah, it's like we're in the throne room right now with, with Moses and Pharaoh. It does feel dark right now, but that's because it's the night. The morning is coming. Um, wait on the Lord. This is the pattern of history. Look to how God dealt with old Egypt. This is precisely how he is going to deal with new Egypt. Our second duty is, is to examine ourselves. What makes us different than the new Egyptians? Dear congregation, how did you come to be saved? while others are perishing. Passage tells us that there was an exceeding great cry in Egypt. But look at verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know what the, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog shall growl. We have the cutest little miniature pincher. Um, and she is timid, not crypto. That's the, that's the mean one. Cookie. Cookie's the nice one. And she has this little teeny, she's a female. She was the run to the litter. She's this little teeny, barely audible growl when somebody comes in. Because she's, you know, exercising her... She does this while she's under the fireplace. She's cowering. <laughs> Not a dog shall growl. That's, that's an idiom. It means there will be a complete absence of opposition. No opposition. Zero. And, and, and God says at the end of verse 7... This was to show that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That means that God was going to treat Israel differently than Egypt. He doesn't kill one, he doesn't kill one Hebrew firstborn. And that should be absolutely shocking. Some people have this false notion today, even Christians, that, that God saves good people. That does not work in this passage. Um, turn with me to Leviticus 17.7. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of these books deal with uh, Israel's departure and then they're, they're going into the wilderness. 
So here the Israelites are in the wilderness post-Egypt, and God is telling them how they must worship now that they are free. So look at Leviticus 17, 7, and God says, So they, Israel, shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Now notice those two words. No more. They shall no more do this. Meaning that at one time, previously, they worshipped goat demons in Egypt. So take that in. While Yahweh was making his plans to kill Egyptians firstborn, to spare the Israelites, his people were given over to the worship of goat demons. And when they get out of Egypt... They get mad at Moses and tell them that they didn't even want to be saved. Look at, turn to Exodus chapter 14, 11 through 12. This is where they're at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's behind them. The sea is in front of them. Verse 11, they say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So, why would God treat these goat demon-worshipping rebels in Israel any different than the goat demon-worshipping rebels in Egypt? Don't, don't you see what God is doing here? He's illustrating his beautiful doctrine of election that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then back to my question, dear Christian, what makes you different than the new Egyptians today? How did you come to be saved while others are perishing? This gets to the very heart of our most foundational doctrine of salvation, that we are saved by grace. You and I are just like the new Egyptians you and I worshipped goat demons. And I, I don't mean that literally. I mean that like Israel, we worshipped the gods of the world. You worshipped yourself. You didn't want God. You didn't want his Bible. You didn't want his law. You didn't want his gospel. You would have been perfectly content to stay in the prison of your own sin. Yes, your sin made you miserable, but you would have rather stayed in your misery if, if, if parting with it meant that you would have to worship the Lord. John 3, 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's who you and I were. But then something amazing happened, something wonderful happened. God made a distinction between you and others. Look at the verse again. It has nothing to do with where Israel was locating themselves. It didn't say Israel did this or Israel did that. It says that God made a distinction. And when that distinction happened, you were born again. 
And for the first time, you believed on the Lord and you loved him and you wanted to serve him and live for him all the days of your life. That is what saving grace is. It's not something that you asked for. No Christian makes themselves a Christian. Grace, by its very definition, means it's unowed, it's unmerited, it's undeserved, it can't be bought, it can't be earned. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And God doesn't do that with everybody, and He's drawing your attention to it on purpose. I'm shocked sometimes because I start sharing my testimony with people and I forget sometimes that some of you didn't have the very prodigal past that I have had. Prodigal son, that, that was me, like on steroids. So you, you might say to this whole conversation, but I was, I was raised in the church. I was raised as a covenant child in a covenant home with Christian friends and a Christian education. I never looked like Egypt. I never did those Egyptian things. Okay, fine. So then you're a Jacob. What about Esau? Both Jacob and Esau were brothers. They were raised in the same covenant home. And God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Grace does not flow through bloodlines. Jesus said, John 1, 12 through 11, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God to the exclusion of all human effort. Salvation doesn't come because you're raised in the right home. And I praise God for being in the right home. Parents, raise your children rightly. Neither does salvation come because you exercised your free will. If, if God were to allow you to exercise your free will, always unencumbered, you would choose hell every time. You are saved only because it was God's good pleasure to save you. You looked and you smelled and you acted like Egyptians. But God chose to have mercy upon you anyway. This one I choose. This one I will have pity on. This one I will have compassion on. Him, her, this child, they belong to me. It's what God is wanting to show us in this text, that God showed a distinction in Israel, not because of anything in Israel, but because of something in him. And the same thing is true about us, loved ones. That God saved us, not because of anything in us, but entirely because of what is in Him. Let's look finally then at our delight. You realize that this is not the first time that God threatened the death of a firstborn. In fact, the most ancient threat in the Bible is a threat against a firstborn son. It comes from the most ancient story. Adam and Eve betrayed God. They aligned themselves with the serpent. He's the original goat demon in the garden. 
And by their sin, death came into the world. But God did something wonderful. God did something unthinkable. You know how he responded to their sin? He threatened the life of his own firstborn son so that they could be saved. He promised that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who who is that? The firstborn son of Mary would crush the serpent's head. But in that crushing, it would cost him his life. Don't you see, dear friends, in our passage, God is not letting the Hebrews off the hook at all. He already threatened their firstborn son. The threat against the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn son of God, is what saved them and is what saved their children. Dear congregation, this ancient threat against God's firstborn son is how we are saved. This is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his firstborn son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All over the New Testament, our Savior Jesus is called the firstborn son. Listen to this. Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The New Testament over and over and over again identifies Jesus as the firstborn. And this has caused problems, hasn't it? What, What do the cults do with this? What do the Jehovah's Witnesses do? Well, they they claim that that Jesus was therefore a created being, that he's not equal with God. But as we've seen, that this term firstborn in Scripture doesn't primarily refer to birth. Girls are not counted as the firstborn in Scripture, even if they were first because they didn't carry the family line. The firstborn status could be transferred from the older son to the younger son. Firstborn status is not primarily about birth. Rather, the firstborn means to be the patriarch. It means to be the head, the king, the kinsman redeemer. It means to have a double portion of the inheritance, to be the heir, to have ultimate preeminence over all. Don't you see? That's why the New Testament calls Jesus the firstborn. He's the firstborn of the new world. It's not merely that he's the heir of a family line. He is the heir of all that there is. Hebrews 1-2, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. His inheritance is not limited to one family. He inherits the nations. Psalm 2-8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. 
He does not have authority over one household only. He has authority over all the heavens and all the earth. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Dear friends, Jesus is unlike any firstborn that ever came before him. He is the true and better firstborn. He is the Lord of firstborns. He is the king of firstborns. And this Jesus, this firstborn son, is who, the God, who God the Father threatened for your sake. He, God threatened that being, the highest being for you, a demon goat worshiper. No threat came at all against Israel's firstborn because the father threatened his own son for their, their sake and no threat will ever come against you. Isn't that amazing? You live in a world where danger is at our left hand. That little teeny miniature pen can't even growl against you. That's because the firstborn son of God has the preeminence. He has the responsibility to take care of you. He's the head of our family. He's our kinsman redeemer. He is our king. And the father charged him that he would lose nothing of all that he gave to him. It's his responsibility to keep us, to preserve us, to care for us all the way to the end. And that's what Jesus promised. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing at all of what he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So then what is our charge this morning? Well, we are to carry the responsibility of the firstborn in our age. Just like Israel before us, the church, is the firstborn of God. Hebrews 12, 23 calls us the church of the firstborn. And that means something for us. Children, boys and girls, um, if you're a firstborn, raise your hand. All right. Uh, Yeah, that was good. No, that's good. I like that. That's great. You were listening. The oldest girl... And the oldest boy both raised their hand. Okay, so you can put your hands down now. Um, <laughs> when your mom and dad leave to go to a restaurant or, or go out, who's in charge? <laughs> yeah, that might, might be a fight, right? Well, the firstborn is, right? That's the responsibility of the firstborn. You have all these great privileges, but you also have a double responsibility. And that's what's happening to us as the church, as the firstborn. We have a responsibility to lead the nations to Christ. That was Israel's responsibility in the Old Testament. And that is what our responsibility is now that Christ has ascended in heaven. Listen to what one author says. As Yahweh's firstborn, Israel was set apart to be his brother's keeper. He was Yahweh's servant among the nations, called to bring the light of divine redemption to the Gentiles, end quote. And dear congregation, that's our charge. We have been given an an inheritance that is far more abundant than we can ask or think. We have been chosen by the Father. We have been redeemed by the Son. We have been filled with the Spirit. We belong to a kingdom that can never die 
filled with righteousness and peace and joy, world without end. And with that privilege comes great responsibility. As the firstborn in this world, we have a responsibility, a charge to be the kinsman redeemer to the nations, to draw others, to evangelize others, to disciple them back to the Lord. Romans 1.5 says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And that is our charge in every sphere of influence and every generation until the Lord returns. And this is how, this is how Paul puts it, and I'll end here. Colossians 1, 20 and 29. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Loved ones, may we as the church of the firstborn fulfill that same mission all to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave your firstborn son and you cursed him so that we could be spared. We thank you that you made a distinction not based on our merits. Lord, for if you looked at our lives and chose us based on what we have done, we would be lost. But Lord, you made a distinction on grace alone. And we praise you. Lord, please empower us, Lord, to to carry on this legacy in the world today. That we would not be those who hide, that we would not be those who hide their light, but we would be those who carry the torch for the next generation. We thank you for your word, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.